Do you want the latest Linux and open source news delivered right into your ear holes? Well, you've come to the right place then because This Week in Linux is the show for you. I'm Michael Snell from the Tux Digital Network, and this is your weekly source for Linux news. This episode of Twill is sponsored by Linbit, Linode, and Bitwarden. Bloomberg recently announced that they are starting a new funding initiative for open source projects. For those unfamiliar with Bloomberg, they describe themselves as the global business and financial information and news leader. Bloomberg's FOSS Fund works by giving their employees the ability to nominate projects for deciding where the money is distributed. In the announcement of the fund, Bloomberg says, and I quote, Modern digital infrastructure relies on innumerable open source dependencies developed and maintained primarily by volunteers. The open source community is what makes the web work. Participating in these communities allows large organizations to help shape the latest and best technologies available." End quote. Yes, the reliance and importance of these projects, and especially the open source community itself, is what makes the web work. I mean, as also most of modern society too. And I'm not saying that lightly either. Open source technologies, including the Linux kernel, are critical pieces of, well, an astonishing amount of infrastructure these days. So this is great news that Bloomberg is going to be offering funding to open source projects. How much funding, you may be asking? Well, the Bloomberg FOSS Fund has committed $10,000 US dollars per grant with up to three grants per cycle. The duration of each cycle is one quarter or three months. The Bloomberg FOSS Fund is already underway with the first projects getting these grants being Apache Arrow, Curl, and the Celery Project. Apache Arrow is a project that makes data transfer and analytics lightning fast for a number of data-intensive applications. Curl is a ubiquitous tool used to interact with web services and is involved in billions of interactions every day, yet is still essentially developed by one lead and a tiny group of contributors. Then lastly, Celery is a primary task management tool in the Django and Python ecosystem that is used broadly within Bloomberg. Some people may be giving Bloomberg a hard time for only awarding as much as $10,000 per month or $100,000, $120,000 per year. Now, this is, I, I understand why people have this opinion because, you know, Bloomberg is a massive company with Wikipedia reporting the revenue of Bloomberg of upwards of $10 billion as of 2019. I understand why that some people might be thinking they could do more, and it's kind of true. However, on a counterpoint, I propose to consider it's almost a guarantee that most large companies are using open source software in some way or another. And most of these companies are not contributing in any way at all. Also, $10,000 can go a long way in open source projects, so it's pretty awesome to see a company like Bloomberg begin directly funding projects that they utilize. And maybe they'll increase the amount over time once they see the impact that they can make to these projects. I mean, hopefully, it also convinces other companies to begin implementing their own FOSS funds. In fact, Bloomberg was inspired by another fund started by Indeed.com back in 2019. So I like this trend, and I hope it continues. If you'd like to learn more, you'll find links in the show notes. Speaking of companies that can do good for the community, we've got a piece of drama to talk about because Docker has been in some hot water recently with a decision that caused some outrage in the open source community related to their free Teams plan. Now, Docker sent an email to any Docker Hub user who had created an organization telling them that their account will be deleted, including all images, 
if they do not upgrade to a paid team plan. As you might imagine, this did not go over well. Docker does have an open source pro project program system that you can apply to, to participate, but the restrictions to be in this program are very rigid and really just out of touch. So before I go into any further detail, it is important to note that Docker has since retracted this decision after the backlash, but I wanted to cover it on the show so anyone unaware can be informed on this topic. There are th three fairly big issues with this. First, these free team plans were going from a cost of $0 to $420 US per year, which is essentially you know, bad for projects that don't have funding. Secondly, there would be a potential issue of people squatting on existing names of projects that were deleted. There was a concern for that one, of course. And lastly, Docker's definition of what is allowed in their open source program is very rigid and out of touch, like I said, for what even constitutes an open source project. Twitter user Tim Perry described Docker's definition as follows. There is an open source exemption, but it's very strict. Absolutely no pathway to commercialization, no services, no sponsors, no paid add-ons, and no pathway to ever do so later. And they're apparently taking one year or more to process applications anyway, end quote. Now, like I said, after 10 days of backlash, Docker has since retracted this decision and announced as such with a blog post titled, we're no longer sunsetting the free team plan. It is great that Docker realized their mistake and backtracked, but of course this will make people still weary about using Docker Hub anyway. To quote the Docker blog, they say, after listening to feedback and consulting our community, it's clear that we made the wrong decision in sunsetting our free team plan. Last week, we felt our communications were, were terrible, but our policy was sound. It's now clear that both the communications and the policy were wrong. So we're reversing course and no longer sunsetting the free team plan, end quote. I'm very curious why they thought this policy was sound. I guess we'll never know. Docker also noted that if an organization upgraded to the paid plan during the process, then they will be converted back to the free team plan and receive a refund for the period that they signed up for, essentially making that period free to the org that did it. So that's kind of nice in like a good faith gesture at least. But, you know, during this process, there were talks with people using GitHub's container registry instead of Docker Hub. So I wonder if migrations are made regardless of the retraction. We'll have to wait and see what happens there. I think this is an interesting topic. That's why I'm going to cover the show. Let me know what you think in the comments. And if you'd like to learn more about this topic, you'll find links in the show notes. The KDE team have recently announced a new communication method with the introduction of a new forum called KDE Discuss. In the announcement, they say that KDE Discuss is a place for questions, requests, suggestions, banter, and in general, interacting closely with people actively involved in KDE, as well as with fellow users and that KDE Discuss is also a great way of getting up-to-date news about your favorite apps, new KDE products, environments, and frameworks directly from those who create them." End quote. KDE Discuss is powered by the Discourse Forum platform, which is also the same platform that the Tux Digital Forum is powered by. So, you know, by the way, there's a forum of this show where I post a thread for each episode, so if you'd like to share your thoughts and feedback about any particular topic in any episode, then you can feel free to check out the show notes where I'll put a link to the forum thread and the forum in general, or you can just go to forum.tuxdigital.com. Okay, back to the topic at hand. I agree with the decision to switch to Discourse, in fact, not just because we use it here at Tux Digital, but because the old forum was based on PHPBB. I have used and administrated PHPBB forums over many, many years, and sadly, PHPBB just didn't keep up with the being a competitive platform. PHPBB, hard to say, 
has not had a feature release in a few years. I could be wrong about this part, but I'm pretty sure it hasn't had a major release in about a decade. And on the other hand, Discourse is frequently updated for a variety of reasons, including new features, such as a new real-time chat functionality in the latest feature release. It's also worth noting that the old PHPBB forum is still available to view in read-only mode because there's years of data on the existing forum, which could include all sorts of info, including valuable tips and tricks that may be ranking pretty well on search engines. So getting rid of that data would not be a good idea. So they are keeping the forum that previously existed for now before they can archive it and that sort of thing. They will probably have a transition period for this data to create redirects like the, for like the archive and all that sort of stuff. And I recently signed up for this new KDE Discuss forum. And if you are a KDE user, then it might be something for you to check out. So you'll find links in the show notes. This episode of This Week in Linux is sponsored by Linbit. Linbit has been keeping digital businesses running for over 20 years. They're the makers of open source products like DRBD, which is high availability software that has been part of the Linux kernel for many years. And LinStore, industry leading open source and software defined storage. Linbit is run by its founders to this day, and all of its engineers and developers are in-house. With offices in Europe and North America, they offer 24-7 global support to complement their enterprise offerings. Linbit has an active presence in the open source community as well, and they collaborate with the community to help identify and build new features. Linbit provides enterprise-grade software that runs on a variety of platforms without vendor lock-in, which is becoming much, much more invasive these days in the tech world. So it's fantastic to see that with Linbit. With DRBD and LinStore, you can have high-speed replicated block storage in almost any configuration, whether that's Kubernetes, Apache Cloud, or Open Nebula. There's even DRBD proxy for long-distance replication. So visit linbit.com to learn more about the people behind Linbit and all the awesome products that they offer and how they can be your open source partner for block storage and more. Vanilla OS has recently announced the latest release of their Linux distro. And with this release comes a lot of changes, including one pretty massive change. For those unfamiliar, Vanilla OS is an immutable, atomic Linux distribution. For those unfamiliar with what immutable and atomic Linux distribution means, well, essentially this is a distro that works in a read-only mode for the most part, while your customizations and configurations and applications sit on top in a separate layer keeping the core components relatively untouched by the user so upgrades can, in theory, be more reliable. Now, you may have heard of Fedora's Silverblue or Kinoite projects, and they're very similar in how they work. Vanilla OS has announced version 2.0 codename ORCID. This release sees significant changes, like introducing OCI support in AB root, which means they will have more control over updates and more time to test the images before release. This release also includes upgrading to Linux 6.x series and more. The biggest change in vanilla OS is easily the switch from being Ubuntu-based to being based directly on Debian. Though the unstable branch of Debian is being used, which is called SID for those who don't know. Debian SID is referred to as the unstable branch because there's not a lot of testing done at this level, so bugs and issues are expected to exist. They offered multiple reasons for this rebasing to Debian SID, which were providing a more vanilla experience than could be done in Ubuntu due to Ubuntu's customization to the GNOME desktop. They also mentioned snaps as being a reason for the switch and wanting more flexibility for their release cadence. This is an interesting decision because Debian SID is far from what most people consider a stable experience, but combine it with an immutable and atomic approach, and it has some intriguing potential. 
They also said that they will be cutting back on the amount of packages to make it easier to maintain and suggest users rely on things like flat packs for their applications. I'm curious how this works out for the project, so I may just give it a spin myself and see what it's all about. If you'd like to give it a spin or just want to learn more about Vanilla OS, you'll find links in the show notes. Speaking of Debian, the Debian team have reported on a survey of developers on the use of project funds to support development work inside of the Debian project. For a quick TLDR, there seems to be a broad support for paying people who are already involved as Debian contributors, but very little support for hiring contractors. That is to say, those who are not already Debian contributors in some way. Members of the security team were by far the most supportive towards the idea of paying Debian contributors. Now, this is a very interesting survey that breaks it down over the course of 124 pages in this downloadable PDF. The full report is available for those who are wanting all the details and pie charts, and I'll have it linked in the show notes. I think this is great to see a project like this considering the use of project funding as a way to pay developers to work on the project. This might seem like a no-brainer on the surface, and you might have even had a thought like, duh, that comes to mind. Unfortunately, there are projects in the Linux and open source ecosystem that do not distribute their funding to developers that work on the project. And it's not uncommon for this to happen. Rather, they rely on developers to act as volunteers. As of this moment, Debian is one of those. But it is great to see they are considering to make a change here. I hope other projects out there consider doing the same because developers volunteering their time is great. It's a fantastic thing. Open source has already proven that it works. But... It also means that they can only devote so much time on their volunteering efforts because people, you know, people got to eat. Also, it's possible some things might never even get attention due to lack of time or lack of interest from the volunteers. So I'm all for this kind of thing happening in Debian and, well, as many projects as possible. If you'd like to learn more about this topic, I'll have a link to the PDF that you can download in the show notes. In other distro news, let's talk about Solus. Previously on Twill, we talked about the current state of the Solus project. And it seems that things have not gotten better. Recently, there was a blog post made at BoilingSteam.com that argues that it is time for people to stop using and recommending Solus. It's an interesting take on the status of the Solus, and I don't agree with everything in the article, but there are some good points made in the article. Now, last time we discussed this topic, there had been some downtime for the Solus website, and then there was some update server issues, as in like the servers that do updates, they started having issues. There was a bit of communication from Solus about what was going on at the time, and that work was being done to bring the project back, but since then, it does not seem to have improved much. Some things were brought back online, and still, many things weren't. And at this point, there has not been communication from the Solus project about anything, you know, Twitter or otherwise, since late February. As far as the budgie desktop goes, well, the project itself that became independent from Solus last year well, they're having, they're basically cautioning people from using Solus. And they say, and I quote, it is currently cautioned against installation of Solus. It may not work out of the box on modern hardware as no new release has been made since mid 2021. Additionally, Solus infrastructure has not been operational for over two months, resulting in numerous packages remaining out of date with security vulnerabilities going unpatched, end quote. Also, a follow-up for that was published on Mastodon by the budgie lead, Joshua Strobel, where he said that if Solus fails to push any updates by April 21st, then Solus will be removed from the Getting Budgie page. Now, Solus is certainly in a weird state at the moment, and I hope that something happens soon to revive this once-promising boutique distro, but we'll have to just wait and see. 
Unfortunately, there's no communication about what's going on. So people are just assuming that nothing's going on. I hope in the back end that things are changing and we should, you know, if there is anything happening with Solus, you should probably let everybody know as soon as possible because even if it takes a little while to do it, people are going to continue to leave unless they know that something's coming. So if there is, and I hope there is, you know, let us know. But we'll wait and see. And if you'd like to learn more about this topic, you'll find links in the show notes. This episode of This Week in Linux is brought to you by Linode. Visit linode.com slash tux. That's linode.com slash T-U-X. And see why over a million developers trust Linode for their infrastructure. Linode provides solutions and services to accelerate innovation, and you can build everything yourself, or you can use their one-click apps from a plethora of options on Linode's app marketplace to deploy everything from Plesk and WordPress to Valheim and Minecraft servers. Linode even has VPN-friendly virtual servers so you can create secure connections over the internet, protecting you on public Wi-Fi at cafes or airports or whatever. And if you're using those kinds of Wi-Fi, you definitely need a VPN for that. So look into using the Linode VPN-friendly service for that. And if that wasn't enough, every plan comes with Linode's amazing human-powered customer support. What does that mean? Well, it means a human is going to be part of the customer support. So someone will pick up the phone, respond to your email, or reply to you on social media 24-7, 365. So visit linode.com slash tux to create a free account. Plus, when you use that URL, you'll let them know that we sent you, which is, of course, good for us. But it's also good for you because you'll get a 60-day, $100 free credit when you go to get that account at linode.com slash tux. So again, get started on Linode's awesome cloud platform by going to linode.com slash tux. System76 has been offering Linux-focused computers for many years, including the manufacturing of their own in-house desktop line called the Thaleo, or Thelio, something like that. And then they started manufacturing their own line of mechanical keyboards called the Launch, Launch Light, and Launch Heavy keyboards. I know I said those right. For a long time, people have been speculating that an in-house laptop will be added to their lineup, and System76 revealed on my other podcast, Destination Linux, here on the Tux Digital Network, that they are working to make such a laptop. And this week, Carl Richel, the CEO of System76, shared a first glimpse of their in-house laptop prototyping on Twitter. Carl tweeted out that the code name for this new prototype laptop is Virgo and shared two photos of the aluminum milling for the prototype. Obviously, this is very, very early stage, behind the scenes type of stuff. And it will be very interesting to see what hardware goes into this inside of this System76 Virgo and how their first in-house manufacturer laptop effort turns out but we're gonna have to wait and see because this is a very, very early stage behind the scenes stuff. So if you want to learn more about this topic, you'll find links in the show notes. Recently, there was a report from the Google security researchers that have some pretty harsh words for CentOS and Red Hat related to backporting kernel fixes. Now, first of all, I just wanna say it's great that people are doing this kind of research because security is very important. However, this instance felt like it was kind of being blown out of proportions for me, at least, you know, in my opinion. And sure, I'm not a security researcher, so maybe I shouldn't be talking about this, but this is a podcast where I talk about Linux news, and this is Linux news, so I'm going to continue talking about this. (laughs) This article covers three vulnerabilities, and these vulnerabilities were confirmed to be legitimate and were given CVEs. But I think it is slightly overreacting because one of the vulnerabilities was patched before the report was published without including information about this patch. I also think that this report is not taking into account the severity of these vulnerabilities, nor the amount of time and effort required to patch them. This report says that they gave Red Hat 90 days to create and publish these patches. First of all, it's totally possible that 90 days is not enough to patch things and also distribute it. 
with that said though, it's not like Red Hat engineers are just sitting around waiting for Project Zero to tell them about security bugs. There's always a backlog of work to do, plus bug severity certainly plays a part of prioritization, of course. For example, if something is deemed critical, then of course they would put it at the top list of the list of priorities. But in this case, all three bugs require local access to exploit, which means it is not as vital to immediately jump on fixing those as other bugs might be or other things that they're working on. And triaging these kind of things is kind of like part of the expertise that people pay Red Hat to do. It's part of the, the value of having Red Hat being you know behind everything. Now this researcher also seems to think that 90 days lead time is too much somehow. To quote the report, they say, and I quote, I am reporting this bug under our usual 90 day deadline this time because our policy currently doesn't have anything stricter for cases where security fixes aren't backported. We might change our treatment of this type of issue in the future. It'd be good if upstream Linux and distributions like you could figure out some kind of solution to keep your security fixes in sync so that an attacker who wants to quickly find a nice memory corruption bug in CentOS Arel can't just find such bugs in the delta between upstream stable and your kernel. I realize there's probably a lot of history here. Seems a little snarky, but you know, maybe I'm just interpreting it that way. I don't know. So they feel that 90 days is more than enough, and in fact, they think it should be more strict. Issues with local attack vectors typically are not considered critical because access to a system is already required in order to utilize them. You may be wondering why am I covering this on the show? Well, firstly, I wanted to address this topic of vulnerabilities because yes, it is important to fix these kinds of things ASAP, but it's not as critical as it is being made out to be. When a vulnerability is only exploitable, a vulnerability is only exploitable as a local attack vector, then that means the attack vector, you know, they need other access to get the use of it because this issue in question cannot be used until they get that. I occasionally cover these topics because people like to exaggerate the severity of these bugs to make it seem like Linux isn't as secure as the community claims it is. But in reality, these kinds of bugs require existing access, lowering the severity quite a bit. The second reason is because I saw some people claim that alternatives like Alma Linux and Rocky Linux are not affected by this, but that is simply not accurate because they're clones of RHEL. And as some of these alternatives like to say, bug for bug compatible, which is a weird phrase, but it means they most certainly are affected. Lastly, the other reason I wanted to cover this is that changes to CentOS that got people in an uproar is actually offering something very awesome compared to how it used to be. In the past, CentOS was a clone of RHEL, which meant everyone had to wait for RHEL to do everything and community patches were simply not an option. But the next infrastructure that came with this new CentOS stream completely changed that. CentOS Stream actually makes this addressable by contributors, not just relying on Red Hat unlike before. This means that security reachers who found these issues could also send a patch to fix these issues immediately and had them fixed super fast at that point. I thought this was interesting to, to cover on the show. Let me know what you think. Let me know in the comments or on the forum threads. Last week, we talked about the Cinnamon Desktop because the Ubuntu Cinnamon Remix is becoming an official flavor of Ubuntu. This week, we're talking about the Cinnamon Desktop because we got some news from the Linux Mint team that there are some cool visual improvements coming to the Cinnamon Desktop. Cinnamon folder icons are going to get a slight refresh based on the feedback that they received from their users. Now, this is not a big news item necessarily, but I wanted to include this because I always appreciate it when developers listen to their community in this kind of way. But the biggest change that they announced is the new Cinnamon Styles system. This new style system is a way to quickly change the look and feel of your Cinnamon desktop. They come with three different modes, mixed, dark, and a light option. 
And additionally, each of these modes has a color variant system. This essentially makes it possible to have a one-click UI option switcher, which is similar to KDE Plasma's look and feel themes and also Mate's interface switcher. Previously, users needed to individually select matching components, like a GTK theme, an icon theme, shell theme, etc., to create their style versus this all-in-one solution that it has now. And as a fan of customization, I am glad to see this kind of thing happening and this kind of feature being added to the Cinnamon desktop. If you'd like to learn more, you'll find links in the show notes. This episode of This Week in Linux is brought to you by Bitwarden. Get started right now with your free account at bitwarden.com tux. Bitwarden is an awesome piece of software. It is a password manager that allows you to have peace of mind knowing that your online accounts are secure. How does it do it? Well, Bitwarden provides you with tools to store all of your passwords in a secured vault, auto-generate those passwords, and also auto-generate usernames, and even automatically fill in those passwords and usernames on login forms so you don't have to do any of this stuff. You can also get access to you know, your data across many different types of devices, whether it's your mobile application, web browser, desktop application, or even on the command line, Bitwarden has you covered. Bitwarden also seals and encrypts your private data to, with end-to-end encryption before it ever leaves your devices, so you know that you're the only person with access to your data, which is very important for a password management system. Now go to bitwarden.com tux to get started. Did I mention you can start it for free? Well, you can. But I think you want to check out their premium account because you get a ton of great, awesome features for less than a dollar per month. That's right, less than a dollar per month or $10 per year gets you one gigabyte of encrypted file storage, two-step login with YubiKey, U2F, Duo, Vault Health Reports, Bitwarden Authenticator for temporary one-time passwords, priority customer service, and so much more. All of this for less than a dollar per month. So make the smart move like many community have and go to bitwarden.com tux. That's bitwarden.com slash T-U-X. It's been a while since we covered gaming on this show, so let's do it. And a game I never expected to support Linux as a gaming platform now has support thanks to the Steam Deck. And that game is called Halo, or the Master Chief Collection to be specific. The game previously did work to some degree, but it was not possible to play online under Linux due to some easy anti-cheat issues. But that has since been fixed, so Linux gamers can jump into multiplayer deathmatches and whatnot. Now, the developers also said that further improvements are coming for Steam Deck users, so that's great, and, but there are still some issues right now with the game in various configurations, such as campaign co-op not working online with mixed platforms. So Linux gamers are able to co-op online with other Linux gamers, but not with people who are using Windows or Xbox, because it's not compatible with the mix between that and Steam Deck players. Now, work is still needed to be done for full compatibility, but this is great to see that it's happening for Linux gamers, and especially as a former Halo gamer. I'm looking forward to checking this out myself, and if you'd like to learn more, you'll find links in the show notes. Valve has rocked the gaming world with the announcement of the next iteration of Counter-Strike. Counter-Strike 2, coming sometime this summer. This will be a, a big uh, source to upgrade for Global Offensive, with some of the features being announced so far are including, but not limited to, responsive smoke, Sub-tick updates for more responsive gameplay, overhauled maps, Source 2 tooling for the community, your whole inventory carries over from CSGO as well, higher resolution models for basically everything, improved visual effects, an upgraded UI, and so much more. And I enjoy playing CSGO even though I'm not that great at it, so it is almost a certainty that I will be picking up CS2 when it comes out. If you'd like to learn more about this, be sure to check the links in the show notes. 
The team behind the Heroic Games Launcher have recently announced a new release for helping you manage Epic Games, GOG, and more on your Steam Deck and Linux desktop. The Heroic Games Launcher has continuously improved every release and has since become a project that people on multiple platforms are talking about. In fact, PC Gamer wrote an article titled, This Heroic App is Miles Better at Being the Epic Games Launcher Than the Epic Games Launcher. <laughs> if you want to check out that article, I'll provide a link in the show notes. Now, this new release comes with a lot of improvements, such as auto-install Ubisoft Connect when running Ubisoft games, UI improvements on the game page to make it cleaner and more organized, library render improvements, and much more. If you'd like to learn more about this and what all comes with the latest release of the Heroic Games Launcher, you'll find links in the show notes. Thanks for watching this episode of This Week in Linux. If you like what I do here on this show and want to be kept up to date with what's going on in the Linux world, then be sure to subscribe. And of course, remember to like that smash button. If you'd like to support the show and the Tux Digital Network, then consider becoming a patron by going to tuxdigital.com contribute, where you can get a bunch of cool perks like access to patron-only sections of our Discord server and much, much more. You can also support the show by ordering the Linux Everywhere t-shirt or the This Week in Linux shirt at tuxdigital.com store. Plus, while you're there, be sure to check out all the other great stuff we got. Hats, mugs, hoodies, stickers, all sorts of great stuff at tuxdigital.com slash store. Thanks again for watching. I'm Michael Tunnell with the Tux Digital Network, and I'll see you next week for another episode of your weekly source for Linux. Good news.